Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. For years, ParCast has worked tirelessly to bring you an unprecedented look at history's most radical true crime events. Your support has not only allowed us to keep exploring these stories, but has driven us to keep expanding as well. So as a thank you to the ParCast listeners, I am honored to announce the release of our first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's available on July 12th, and you can pre-order it today at parcast.com cults. The Branch Davidians, the Ant Hill Kids, Heaven's Gate, and more. Cults combs through the terrifying details never explored in any of Parcast's series before. This is a passion project only made possible by you. So we truly hope you'll enjoy it. Visit parcast.com slash cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, child abuse, suicidal ideation, and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Detective Fred McLean gazed at the sunrise as he stepped into the Browns' backyard. He'd been inspecting the grisly murder scene for hours already, but the primary suspect was nowhere to be found. 14-year-old Cinnamon Brown had vanished into thin air. McLean paced near the dog run while he racked his brain. As he walked by, the smallest puppy ran up to him. It had managed to squeeze through a space in the chain-link gate. McLean scooped it up and gingerly placed it back in the pen, glancing at the doghouses as he did so. There was something off about the bigger of the two, a shoe was peeking out ever so slightly. McLean knew right away what he was looking at. It was cinnamon. Sure enough, he peered inside and saw the teenage girl curled up in a tight ball. She was covered in vomit and barely conscious. McLean had to get her to a hospital and fast. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Last week, we discussed David Brown's path from unremarkable child to master manipulator. He used his charisma and power to manipulate two teenage sisters, as well as his own daughter, Cinnamon. This week, we'll follow David as he uses his silver tongue to convince Cinnamon to do his dirty work, and disaster strikes. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hear that? 
It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Nineteen eighty-five was just getting started, but Cinnamon Brown was already having a bad New Year. Her dad, thirty-two-year-old David, had just dropped a bomb. He said he needed Cinnamon's help to murder his twenty-three-year-old wife, Linda. At just 14 years old, Cinnamon's ability to understand consequences was still on shaky ground and her dad wasn't helping. Before we get into some psychology here, please note, I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. Although she likely knew that murder was wrong, she couldn't imagine that David would lead her astray her deep-seated need to believe his every word probably stemmed from her unstable childhood. According to psychologist Dr. Rebecca Brock, kids like Cinnamon who grow up in contentious households tend to be emotionally insecure. As such, they come to believe that relationships are inherently tenuous and fragile. They'll often go to desperate lengths to maintain meaningful connections, and there was no doubt that David was the most important person in Cinnamon's life. So when he said Linda was out to get him, she took his word for it. She tried to distance herself from her stepmom, but it was tough. She and Linda got along great. In fact, the only person in the Brown house that Cinnamon didn't get along with was Linda's sister, Patty. She and Cinnamon were around the same age, but that's about all they had in common. The girls had been sharing a room for months now. Thanks to the close quarters, they fought even more than usual. Sometime around February, Patty decided she'd had enough. She needed her own space. But Linda refused to give in to her little sister's demands. As much as Patty might have wished otherwise, she was still the woman of the house. When David heard about the situation though, he immediately sided with Patty. He relegated Cinnamon to the trailer in the backyard. We don't know for sure how Cinnamon felt about the new arrangement, but she was probably relieved to escape her dad and Patty. She knew they had more than murder on their minds. It had been less than a month since she caught them kissing in Kmart. 
Cinnamon never mentioned the kiss to her stepmom, but Linda wasn't blind. She noticed that Patty and David had become unusually close over the last few weeks. When Patty asked for her own room, Linda had a feeling she knew the real reason why, and it had nothing to do with Cinnamon. Things between Linda and David only got worse from there. Not even their excitement about seven-month-old Crystal seemed to help. Although the couple fought constantly, Linda was still emotionally and financially attached to David. So when he told her to apply for life insurance, again, she didn't question it. She surely found it odd that this was her fourth visit to the office since Crystal was born, but David assured her it was just standard practice. He insisted this was what responsible parents did to make sure their kids were taken care of, just in case. Ever since he was a kid, David had complained about his health. As far as Cinnamon could tell though, that was no longer the thing that scared him the most. All he ever talked about these days was Linda's alleged plot to kill him. Every time he brought it up to Cinnamon and Patty, he seemed to grow more desperate to get rid of her. Eventually, the three of them started brainstorming ideas on how to do that. Most of the girls' ideas came from movies. They suggested hitting Linda over the head or tossing a toaster in the bathtub. Maybe they could make it look like she tripped and pierced herself on a sharp rock. It became a twisted game of what if. But it wasn't long before their round of pretend got real. One of Linda and Patty's brothers recently had a baby and the entire Brown clan went to the hospital to visit. David's parents, Arthur and Manuela, decided to tag along. At one point, Cinnamon stood in the lobby with her grandfather. Out of the blue, he turned and asked her if she knew about Linda's plot to kill David. It caught her totally off guard. She'd been under the impression that no one else was aware of the situation especially not her grandparents. She told Arthur he'd have to ask her dad about it. As if on cue, David and Patty joined them and Arthur repeated himself. David didn't seem surprised by his dad's question at all. He reminded Arthur about the threatening phone call Linda had supposedly made about him. He refused to elaborate further and said they would take care of it on the way home. Patty nodded along as he explained how they were going to push Linda out of the van on the freeway. Once again, Cinnamon was left out of the loop. The scheme was news to her. She wanted to talk things through with her dad. Before she could say anything though, Linda and Manuela returned to the lobby. Cinnamon tried to cover her panic as they made their way back to David's car. She was shaking so badly that she barely felt the rumble of the engine or the weight of Patty sitting down next to her. When the car merged onto the freeway, David picked up speed. Patty turned to Cinnamon and gestured towards Linda. She whispered into Cinnamon's ear to get up and do it, now. Cinnamon refused. She'd agreed to help her dad, but she wasn't willing to be the one to do the killing. Everyone made it home alive, but Cinnamon was rattled. Her dad and Patty were more serious than she thought, and apparently there was no guarantee she'd get any warning before the real thing. 
Given the circumstances, it's no wonder that Cinnamon's schoolwork slipped up around this time. She had a hard time focusing and constantly got in trouble for goofing off in class. Her teachers sent reports home, but they didn't make a difference. As far as David was concerned, school was a waste of time. He hadn't finished high school and still made six figures. So it wasn't too much of a surprise when he floated the idea of taking Patty out of school so she could come work for him. Cinnamon heard about David's proposition and saw an opportunity for herself. She missed her friends in Anaheim and wanted to transfer back. David didn't appear to care either way. That March, she returned to her old school and Patty left entirely. It's not clear how David got away with it, but it seemed no authorities realized that the 15-year-old wasn't enrolled anywhere. In any case, Cinnamon must have been relieved. Finally, she could just spend time with her best friend and be a normal kid for a few hours. That feeling was short-lived, however. Cinnamon decided to hang out with her friends one day after school, but the problem was she was supposed to bike straight home when the bell rang. David knew what time class ended and how long it took for her to ride back. At the end of the day, she was still a responsible kid. Cinnamon called home at 3.30 to ask permission to stay out a little longer. Linda ordered her to get home ASAP. The warning tone in her voice told Cinnamon everything she needed to know. When she pulled up on her bike, David was waiting. He grounded her for three months, which meant no TV, no phone, and no friends. She was restricted to the house at all times unless they were going somewhere as a family. The punishment even extended to school because she didn't show up there that Monday. While Cinnamon remained housebound, her dad continued to nag her about the plan. He decided that however they killed Linda, Cinnamon should be the one to take the blame. She was young and would get a more lenient sentence. Cinnamon was terrified at the thought, but as always, David assured her it would be all right. He had another brilliant idea to keep her out of trouble. They could make it look like she tried to die by suicide after she offed Linda. The courts would have to go easy on her then. He went so far as to make Cinnamon practice writing a note. They settled on one that read, Dear God, please forgive me. I didn't mean to hurt her. With that done, they just had to wait for the right time to strike. On Monday, March 18th, Cinnamon got a nice distraction. Her mom, Brenda, had family in town who wanted to see her. Since she still wasn't allowed to go anywhere, they came to David's house to say hi. He even came out and played nice for a bit. Cinnamon knew he was faking it, but it didn't matter as long as he stayed pleasant. After everyone left, David invited Arthur and Manuela over for dinner. While Linda cooked, the rest played cards. It was a typical evening in every way. Cinnamon complained when she was asked to do the dishes. Linda and Manuela had a tiff about whether or not to let Crystal self-soothe. The evening wound down from there. The grandparents left and David and Linda went off to bed. Cinnamon and Patty stayed up to watch TV. After a while though, they started to nod off on the couch. They turned it off and went to sleep in Patty's room. It felt like she'd only just closed her eyes 
when suddenly Cinnamon was jolted awake. David stood over the bed with a crazed look in his eyes. He said tonight was the night. It had to happen now. Coming up, three young lives are ruined. Hi, listeners. It's Carter from ParCast Network. It's the perfect time to grab yourself a second helping of the Spotify original from ParCast, Devious Dads. Our limited series is back with a new collection of episodes from across the network, exposing the unfortunate families whose patriarchs had a penchant for causing pain. Criminal masterminds, spies, murderers. Every Sunday on Spotify, Devious Dads features the fathers who chose to put the fear of God into those they tormented, including their own families. Some men raise children, others raise hell. Be sure to follow season two of Devious Dads free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In the pre-dawn hours of March 19, 1985, 32-year-old David Brown shook Cinnamon and Patty awake. He led his bleary-eyed daughter to the kitchen and instructed her to get a glass of water while he unscrewed a prescription bottle. He dumped a pile of pills into her hand and said to swallow. Cinnamon did as she was told. She was too exhausted to process what was happening and didn't have the ability to come up with an appropriate response. Once the first bottle was empty, David opened up a second and handed her more meds. Sinman could feel the water in her stomach slosh as she washed the pills down. That, plus the adrenaline, made her feel sick already. Finally, David said she could stop. Cinnamon followed him back to Patty's room. She looked a lot calmer than Cinnamon felt. Her mind raced. She hardly understood what her dad was saying. One of them needed to shoot Linda. He didn't care which one did it, but afterward, Cinnamon would take the fake suicide note they'd written and go hide somewhere. One of the doghouses, maybe. Everything happened so quickly, Cinnamon just wanted to slow down for a moment. There wasn't time for a discussion, though. David said he needed to leave the house. He couldn't be there when they killed Linda. His tone was steady but urgent, almost businesslike. He trusted Cinnamon and Patty to take care of it. Then he looked at Cinnamon for perhaps the first time that night. She probably hoped for words of compassion. Instead, he delivered his usual ominous warning. If it wasn't done when he got back, he'd have to disappear for good. Just before he left, he handed Cinnamon the pillow from his recliner. 
He instructed her to hold it over the gun to muffle the shot and walked out the door without another glance. Her dad gone, Cinnamon looked to Patty like a lost puppy. In response, Patty handed her a gun. Cinnamon didn't even know they had one in the house, let alone how to use it. Even so, it looked like she'd been elected to pull the trigger. This time, she didn't try to argue. Patty sent her down the hall. Cinnamon trembled as she made her way to the room where 23-year-old Linda slept. She slowly pulled down the handle and pushed the door open. With a deep breath, she stepped inside. She moved so quickly that her eyes didn't have time to adjust to the inky darkness, not that she wanted to see what she was doing. Cinnamon shot in the general direction of where she thought Linda would be and ran out as fast as possible. Feeling nothing but the thunder of her heart, Cinnamon rushed back to Patty's room. While she was preoccupied, Patty retrieved Crystal from the nursery. The two of them sat calmly on the bed as Cinnamon ran inside, panicked. The pillow had somehow gotten stuck in the gun and she thought she'd broken the thing. She and Patty fumbled around, trying to pry the fabric out of the chamber. Suddenly, the gun went off and fired into the wall above Patty's bed. Cinnamon could barely hear the baby scream over the ringing in her ears. When that subsided, another noise caught her attention. The sounds coming from Linda's room were that of a gravely wounded animal. Cinnamon didn't want it to be real, but one look at Patty and she'd heard it too. Patty cocked the hammer on the gun and handed it back to Cinnamon. She told her that they had to finish the job. David would be back any minute. Cinnamon's hands shook as she went back down the hall. She fired once more at Linda's side of the bed. Without the pillow, the gun was that much louder. Startled, Cinnamon dropped it on the ground and fled. She tried to slow her racing mind and remember what to do next. She was supposed to hide. She ran out to her trailer and grabbed the note. Then she stuffed herself inside the bigger of the two doghouses. It was a tight fit. She could barely breathe and definitely couldn't move. That didn't matter much though, because pretty soon, the pills took effect. It was only supposed to look like she attempted to die by suicide, but Cinnamon felt like she really might not make it. We don't know how many hours she spent curled up in the tiny structure. It must have felt like an eternity. Meanwhile, David returned to the house, his alibi secured. As she held Crystal, Patty told him Linda was dead. Cinnamon had done it. A fleeting look of surprise crossed David's face. It's not clear why, but instead of phoning the police, David called his dad, Arthur. He played the lost little boy as he tearfully explained what happened. Arthur said to hang up and call the cops. He and Manuela would be there right away. For once, David was the one following orders. He called the Garden Grove PD. Before long, officers swarmed the house. While the paramedics tried to resuscitate Linda, the police questioned Patty and David, who were already pointing the finger at Cinnamon. 
By the time investigator Fred McLean arrived, he was probably the third or fourth officer David had spoken to. His story remained the same no matter how many times he told it. After everyone went to bed, he and Linda had a fight about the baby. David didn't like the cry it out method she insisted on using. He couldn't sleep after that, so he went for a drive. He stopped at the Circle K on the corner for a Dr. Pepper, a Hostess apple pie, and a couple of comic books. He planned to drive 30 minutes to Newport Beach to clear his head. When he got there, he stopped at Denny's to use the restroom before continuing to the access point. McLean noted that David recited his movements with incredible precision. It seemed like pretty terrible luck that everything had gone down during the one hour or so he was away. David said that when he got back to the house, Patty met him at the front door with Crystal. Tears streaming down her face, she told him that Cinnamon tried to kill her before apparently moving on to Linda. David and Patty both described Cinnamon's relationship with her stepmother as fraught. They explained that things had gotten so bad between them that Linda had kicked Cinnamon out to the trailer. Patty did her best to paint a picture of a seriously troubled girl. According to her, Cinnamon frequently spoke of dying by suicide. Despite the creeping feeling that Patty and David weren't telling him everything, McLean had to admit things didn't look good for Cinnamon, especially because officers had been searching for her for hours without any luck. McLean needed some time to process the interview and made his way to the backyard. As he paced around, one of the Brown's puppies ran up to him. McLean carried it back to the dog run and noticed one of the dog houses had a sneaker peeking out. He peered inside and saw Cinnamon. She was in bad shape. Dried vomit and other bodily fluids covered her. McLean helped her slowly crawl out of the cramped structure and noticed she was a lot smaller than he expected. Cinnamon clung to his arm as he led her to the nearest squad car and sent her to the police station. Paramedics examined her upon arrival and determined she was stable for the moment. They asked her what she'd taken, but Cinnamon had no idea. When McLean joined them at the station, he handed over the empty bottles they'd found in the kitchen. One was a blood pressure medication, and the other was Darvacet N, an opiate-based painkiller. According to the label, fatalities within the first hour of overdosage are not uncommon. It's likely that Cinnamon only survived because she started to vomit. McLean knew she desperately needed to rest. Unfortunately, he couldn't let that happen yet. At 8 a.m., he sat Cinnamon down in one of the interview rooms. To gauge her level of awareness, he asked if she knew where she was and why. Cinnamon nodded. She was at the police station because she'd shot Linda. Cinnamon thought of her father as she answered question after question. She fought through her drug-induced delirium and delivered every line, just as he instructed. She explained that she and Linda had been fighting a lot recently. She said Linda wanted her to move out and even threatened to kill her if she didn't. McLean asked what they'd fought over, but Cinnamon couldn't recall. He could see she was fading fast. They paused so the paramedics could take a blood sample. 
By the time they were finished, Cinnamon had drastically deteriorated. Her blood pressure wouldn't register on the cuff and she was in and out of consciousness. They rushed her to the nearest hospital. While she was being treated, McLean and the other investigators continued to work on the case. They were particularly eager to talk to Cinnamon's mom, Brenda, and went to her house in Anaheim. Brenda claimed she'd seen her daughter just yesterday and hadn't noticed anything off. She was sure Cinnamon would have shared with her that she was feeling depressed. They fought from time to time, but they were pretty close. All in all, she seemed bewildered by the entire thing, especially by the way David and Patty seemed to be taking it all. She told McLean that the pair had come by the house just before he did. David told her to say Cinnamon had been going through a hard time. It seemed he wanted law enforcement to believe she was troubled somehow. The story raised major red flags. McLean's instincts told him there was a huge piece of the puzzle missing. Ultimately though, he wasn't able to turn up a single piece of evidence that pointed to anyone other than Cinnamon. To make matters worse, she'd stopped cooperating with investigators. She had recovered from the overdose, but the experience seemed to have a lasting effect. According to a report from the US Department of Health and Human Services, non-fatal overdoses can cause short-term memory loss and amnesia. Although Cinnamon had already confessed to shooting Linda, in court she claimed she had no memory of the night in question and pleaded not guilty. It's not clear if she truly didn't remember, but in the end, it didn't matter. The odds were stacked against her. On August 12, 1985, 15-year-old Cinnamon Brown was found guilty of first-degree murder. She was sentenced to 26 years to life. The judge sent her to the California Youth Authority Ventura School to receive psychological treatment. Cinnamon reeled, This wasn't at all what her father had promised. He said she'd be home in a few months. This meant one of two things. Either her dad didn't know as much as he said he did, or he'd lied. Either way, Cinnamon saw a crack in his facade, and it was just a matter of time before the whole thing crumbled. Coming up, the case is closed but the real story is far from over. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, price line. Now, back to the story. By the summer of 1985, 15-year-old Cinnamon Brown was a convicted murderer. Her new home was the Ventura School in Camarillo, California. As prisons went, it could have been worse. Cinnamon had her own room in a cottage that housed 50 other girls, The campus was park-like with open lawns and lots of trees. If she trained her eye to look past the bars on the windows, Cinnamon could pretend she was away at a boarding school. But the truth was plain in the armed security and high perimeter fences. 
she was nearly 100 miles away from everyone she loved, facing 26 years to life in this place. Although she was relatively comfortable, she clung to her father's promises. David came to visit pretty regularly at first, reassuring her that he would take care of everything. And just like she'd always done, Cinnamon put her trust in him. Unfortunately, the truth was that 32-year-old David Brown was ready to move on. He commissioned a custom pendant from his personal jeweler in the shape of a phoenix. The mythical bird reminded him that he was indestructible, the ultimate survivor. David's grandiose vision of himself was a textbook sign of narcissism. Covered in red and orange gems, the piece cost $1,500. To David, that was cheap. His business made well over six figures for several years now, and he'd recently come into even more money. He'd cashed in three of the four life insurance policies that Linda took out last year. In total, he made just shy of $800,000 off his wife's untimely passing. It would have been a million, but the final policy hadn't been officially approved at the time of her death. So, David made do with what he had. He was ready to live large. He started by buying the nicest house in a new subdivision of a nearby town called Orange. Although it was only 20 minutes away from the house in Garden Grove, it was like another world. The neighborhood was built for flaunting wealth, multi-car garages, pools with hot tubs and balconies were among the luxuries on offer. And the Browns had it all. In addition to Patty and the baby, David had asked his parents to move in. Allegedly, he needed Manuela to care for Crystal, while Patty and Arthur picked up the slack at work. Despite what he said, David was probably more concerned with keeping an eye on them than anything else. Manuela and Arthur couldn't understand why Patty hadn't gone back to her own family after Linda's death. Although she was barely 18, they assumed Patty was taking advantage of their son. They had no idea how wrong they were. But from what little he'd been told, Arthur was reasonably sure the whole murder had been Patty's idea. Despite his suspicions, he followed David's instructions and didn't say anything to the police. Even so, David saw him and Manuela as loose ends. If they screwed up, it would cost him big. And this time, he was right to be paranoid. The official inquiry was long over and the case closed in court, but someone was still keeping tabs on David Brown. Jane Newell had been the prosecution's investigator during Cinnamon's trial. Like Fred McLean, the lead homicide detective, Newell felt something was off. Even from his vantage point, it was clear that Patty Bailey had easily stepped into the void her sister left behind. David rarely left the house without her. According to a friend of Linda's, Patty sat in Linda's old chair and even wore her clothes. That was only the beginning. In June 1986, David asked Patty to marry him. It wasn't exactly the sweeping romantic gesture she dreamed of. For starters, he had her sign a prenup that guaranteed her virtually nothing. Most importantly though, she couldn't tell anyone about it, especially not Cinnamon. 
Even David couldn't deny how things would look if it came out that he married Linda's little sister 15 months after her death. By this point, Cinnamon didn't know anything about her father's life, not even his new address or phone number. The only contact information she had was a P.O. box and the number for an answering service. It was probably obvious to most people that David was distancing himself from her. As Cinnamon's first year in prison drew to a close, his visits grew fewer and farther between. She missed him, desperately. When pressed, David blamed his absence on health problems. It seemed like he was always on his way to the ER or being admitted to the hospital. However, her grandparents did their best to correct his lies. More often than not, they were the ones to return Cinnamon's calls to David, and their story was very different. He wasn't at the hospital, he was at the movies, or he was shopping or taking another trip to Vegas. Whatever he was actually doing, Patty was always with him. That didn't surprise Cinnamon, but Grandpa Arthur's next bit of news sure did. Barely two months into 1987, Patty became pregnant. Of course, Arthur didn't realize he was gossiping about his latest daughter-in-law. Neither did Cinnamon, but she did have a feeling about who the father was. Back home, David had already shut down that kind of talk. Just as he had with their marriage, he told Patty she wasn't allowed to tell anyone her child's true parentage. He invented a boyfriend named Doug and told everyone the kid was his. For the first time, Cinnamon didn't buy his story. In all the days they'd lived together, Patty had never so much as had a crush on a boy. The memory of what she'd witnessed all those years ago broke through the surface. Her dad and Patty in an abandoned aisle, a secret kiss. He'd sworn it was an accident. But what if it wasn't? With that, her trust in him grew more tenuous. It was during this time that a man she'd never heard of, someone named Jay Newell, sent Cinnamon pictures through her parole officer. They showed her dad and Patty in fancy cars and a huge house. Cinnamon understood the images weren't meant to hurt her. However, they still stung. They were proof of everything she spent years refusing to acknowledge. David's facade was in pieces and she couldn't deny it any longer. She'd trusted him and he'd used her. He'd gotten everything he wanted while she paid the price. Now, Cinnamon was done. In July 1988, just after her 18th birthday, Cinnamon contacted Newell. After four long years, she was ready to tell the truth. Newell reached out to Fred McLean, who was just as eager to jump back into the case. Together, they interviewed Cinnamon at the Ventura School. She told them what really happened the night Linda Bailey Brown died. After three hours, the investigators went to the deputy district attorney and repeated the story. It was compelling, but the DA needed more than her testimony to retry the case. So Newell and McLean dug around for evidence. Before long, they uncovered the massive life insurance policies David took out on Linda, who was, at the time, a perfectly healthy 22-year-old. It screamed motive loud and clear. By September, 
David and Patty were under arrest and the murder of Linda Brown was back under official investigation. It took longer than the detectives might have liked, but eventually, Patty also turned on David. The moment he denied their child, a part of her stopped loving him. That part only grew more pronounced while she sat in jail awaiting trial. Two months without his constant, overbearing presence gave Patty enough perspective to see that she'd been horribly misled. At the time of the crime, she absolutely believed David was in danger. However, the pain of losing Linda surprised her. She regretted it almost immediately. Although she'd lied to them before, the investigators trusted this version of Patty's story. She and Cinnamon hadn't spoken in years, probably since the night of the murder, yet their testimonies perfectly complemented each other. Meanwhile, David denied having any involvement in Linda's death at all. He claimed Patty and Cinnamon were trying to frame him. He couldn't charm the judge or the jury though. David Brown was found guilty of three charges, first degree murder, conspiracy to commit murder, and murder with the hope of financial gain. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Arthur and Manuela were the only people who stuck by him, visiting him regularly. He died of natural causes in 2014 at the age of 61. Although Patty cooperated to the best of her ability, she wasn't offered a deal. However, because she was only 17 at the time of Linda's death, she was tried in juvenile court. She pled guilty to first-degree murder. The judge sent her to the Ventura School, where Cinnamon was also being held. Patty was assigned to the cottage farthest from Cinnamon's. She craved her forgiveness and wanted to reconnect, but Cinnamon wasn't ready. And as far as we know, they never spoke again. In 1992, after seven long years, Cinnamon was finally granted parole. At 21 years old, she'd spent her whole life in one kind of prison or another, but she emerged from the darkness, ready to face the world one step at a time. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Cinnamon Brown, we found If You Really Loved Me by Anne Rule extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Scott Stronach, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Megan Hannum, edited by Natalie Pertsovsky and Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Haley Milligan, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Hi, it's Carter from Parcast Network. Devious Dads is back for a second season and a new collection of hair-raising episodes from across our catalog of shows. Every Sunday, meet the parents who were anything but protectors. 
Follow Devious Dads free and only on Spotify. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. Exciting news. ParCast's first book, Cults Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them, is now available for pre-order at ParCast.com slash cults. Thanks to your support, we've compiled years of research, insights, and a catalog of case studies to expose more about these cults and the people behind them than ever before. Details which haven't even been explored in our Cults podcast. Visit parcast.com cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them.